uh, chapter 5. Uh, Paul's pattern often in writing his epistles is he, uh, he begins with the theology, the truth about what God has done for us in Christ uh, and then he moves on to talk about the implications and the, the practical applications of that theology for us. And really uh, from Romans chapter 5 onwards uh, he begins to speak about what, what it means for us, the truth of being justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, what does that mean then for a person whose faith is in Jesus Christ? So in chapters 1 to 4, the the two key ideas that Paul was was trying to to establish and to show beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, firstly is that uh, there is no distinction between different people of different races and ethnicities in Christ. There is no such thing as a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian. Uh, There are Christians and Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. And the reason behind that is his uh, uh, second big point that he, he wants to establish is it's because we are justified through faith, not through the things we do. We can't point to anything in ourselves or in the way we act or in our backgrounds or in our family or in the, the group of people that we belong to as the basis for our justification. It must be only through faith. He's done that by appealing to three key things. Firstly, he talks about the universal sinfulness of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, which means there's no way that anyone would be able to justify themselves by what they do, by our works. He spoke of the action of God in Christ at the cross, by which he redeemed us, He atoned for our sin. He set us free from sin and death and he showed himself to be perfectly just and righteous in doing so, which means that he has done everything necessary to justify us as a gift of grace. And then thirdly, he pointed us to the example of Abraham in chapter 4. Abraham, the father of the Jews, But his point was that he's not just the father of the Jews. He's the father of anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, Abraham is the example that you should follow. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, just as Abraham trusted God and received that righteousness from God as a free gift, well, that's too what we should do. We should walk in the footsteps of our father, Abraham. So now that he's he's firmly established this doctrine of justification by faith alone, he moves on to speak about what does that mean for anyone who receives this this gift of justification. I'm not sure if it's that mic. Maybe I'll turn this one off. So verse 1 of chapter 5 He says, therefore, in other words, when you see the word therefore in the scriptures, always ask the question, what's it there for? In light of everything he's said so far in all those four chapters, since we have been justified by faith, 
Since this is absolutely true and is the foundation upon which we stand, what now? What does this mean for us? To be a justified person has massive implications for everything. It's not just about getting a ticket into heaven when we die. It changes who we are. It changes our identity. It changes how we live and how we relate to God and to one another. It changes how we see the future. And it changes our whole journey of life between the right now in the present and when Jesus returns. By justifying us, God has changed our status. In verse 1, there are two key truths that we may know about ourselves on the basis of this justification. Firstly, through Jesus we have peace with God. All hostility has ended from both sides. No longer are we hostile towards God. No longer is God wrathful towards us. We are brought to a place where there is no longer fear of judgement. There is no longer fear of God and his law. We who were once at war with him have now been brought to a place of surrender and we are at peace. That word in the Greek for peace doesn't just mean the end of hostility though, it also means a state, a, a, a peace of mind, uh, the way we think, the way we feel, uh, the, the things we set our affections upon are all now characterised by peace. And so we know the promise, the peace of God, as we were reminded at the start of the service, the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's not just an objective truth, it's a subjective reality in us. Not only do we have peace with God, but also through Jesus we now stand in grace. Through him we have obtained access by by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is the active, intentional favour of God. It's not just that the Father is no longer our enemy, but he looks upon us with favour, with delight. He takes an active pleasure in the fact that we are his children. To stand in this grace means we have a permanent place in his household. There's no longer any fear that we'll lose that position or that we'll fall out of favour in the Father's eyes. Jesus said to his disciples just before he went to the cross, "Um, I am going to prepare a place for you. Don't, Don't be afraid. In my Father's house there are many rooms And I'm going there to prepare a place for you so that you can come into my father's family and you can be established as a member of the family without any fear ever that you'll be expelled. 
These are the fundamental truths of being a justified person. We have peace with God and we stand in his grace. This is what we must say to ourselves every morning before we get out of bed, before the cares and anxieties and the busyness of our day overtakes us and causes us to be discouraged. Be constantly telling yourself, because of Jesus, I am a justified person. I have peace with God and I stand in the favour of my Father. How much better will our days be if we just simply did that? Instead of waking up and starting to go through our minds, oh, what have I got to do today? Am I going to get it all done? Am I going to meet all my deadlines? What about all these people and situations that I'm worried about? Am I going to be accepted by people? Am I going to be approved by people? What are people going to think about me? Say to yourself, no, what's most important is what my father thinks of me. His favour is upon me. I stand in his grace. And as we stand in God's favour, his grace, we're then able to look forward to the future with a sense of hope. I think that often our hope as Christians can be rather self-centred. Our main question we ask when looking at Jesus is, what's in it for me? We live in a consumer culture in which we're always asking this question. How can I get value for money? What will be the return on my investment? If someone's offering something to me for free, What's the catch? Because nothing is free in this world. What do they want in return? We have this consumer culture where our first thought is me. So we can approach our Christian faith in the same way. If I want to be a Christian and live as a Christian, well, what's going to be in it for me? If I can't see that there's anything great in it for me or better than what the world offers, well, why should I bother? It's not just our culture, is it? It's our hearts. The culture that we're in, this consumer culture, is a product of our hearts, of the human heart. Our hearts are full of desires, desires for satisfaction, for happiness, for love, for our physical needs, for health, for sex, for companionship, for community. Now they're all good desires. They've all been given by God They're the kinds of things that a human being is supposed to want and to seek. And so it's not wrong to pursue them, but in our sinfulness, we see these things as an end in ourselves, in in themselves. They become our ultimate goal and we lose sight of the bigger, greater goal that lies behind them all, which is the glory of God. So Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God is to be the centre, the focus of all that we hope for. The Westminster Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief and highest end of man? And it answers, 
The chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. John Piper has taken that and he's altered it slightly to say God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So you see, a hope that is focused on the glory of God doesn't actually do away with our own desires and or our needs and, and seeking to have our needs fulfilled, seeking to become fulfilled and satisfied as a human being because we are so designed that when our focus is on glorifying God that's what we are truly supposed to be and so we will find our full satisfaction and completeness and wholeness as a human being as we are giving glory to God. As we look forward to what the Father has in store for us and for the creation, our eyes should be fixed not simply on the fact that we will be happy and healed and free from death and pain and sorrow, but that all these things will be true because God himself will be dwelling with us and we'll see him face to face. The greatest joy of the new creation won't be the new creation but God himself. Creation will only be glorious because it will be filled with God's glory. You may have noticed that three times in this passage Paul uses this word rejoice. Verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And verse 11, we rejoice in God. This is all the same word in the Greek. Uh, Your version might translate it as boast or glory. And it speaks of placing all of our confidence in a person or in a thing. Seeing that thing or that person as most important above everything else. Giving it supreme significance in our lives. Now Paul has already told us back in 3 verse 27 that all boasting in ourselves is excluded because of the cross. Our self-confidence and pride has been replaced by the glory of God and now our confidence is in him. For someone whose hope is in the glory of God is truly living in their full humanity. Anything else is substandard. If you're living for your own glory, you're going to be dysfunctional as a human being. It's only if our focus is and our hope is the glory of God that we'll know our true humanity. So having peace with God, standing in his grace, gives us that sure hope for the future when the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. We'll see him face to face and we will be clothed in his glory, we'll know our true humanity as we see him as he is. But what about this in-between time? The time between the now, when we know peace and favour, and the then, when all things will, will be made new and we'll see the glory of God. 
well, as I've already said, being justified by faith transforms the whole of life. It's not just the ticket to heaven. So how does being justified by faith change the way we live in between these two milestones? Well, verse 3 makes this remarkable statement. We rejoice in our sufferings. The same word that he uses to describe how we view God and his glory, he uses to describe how we should view our sufferings. Whether we admit it or not, suffering is and always will be part of our lives. We know that too well, don't we? Uh, We're sitting here this morning, uh, a number of us are suffering in our bodies, in our minds, in our souls. Uh, We know people who are suffering. Our suffering is a reality, whether it's our suffering or the suffering of someone we know and love. The word that he uses here literally means pressure. And it's a word that can refer to all kinds of sufferings, whether it's just the stress and pressure of everyday life in the busy world in which we live, right up to severe tribulation and death. There's no one ever no matter how easy their life may be, who does not and will not face suffering of some kind. Jordan Peterson is a professor of psychology in Canada and he's become quite well known recently because of his candid view of human life and his call to people, especially to young men, to step up and to face the realities of life in this world. Here's what he says about suffering. What's reality? Well, there's material reality, but that isn't the reality you live. You live in a reality that's full of emotions and motivations and personal experiences. That's your reality. But what's the structure of that reality? What is the fundamental structure of the human lived reality? Part of it is suffering because we're finite and limited. But it's suffering that's tainted with malevolence because some of that suffering is unnecessary. You cause it. Society causes it. It doesn't have to happen. That's the world we live in. It's hard and it's cruel. You're stuck with it. That's the bottom line. So how are you going to deal with it? Now, Peterson isn't a Christian and uh, that's the reason why, I guess he says, the main reason we suffer is because we're finite and limited. He doesn't bring in the sense of uh, human sin uh, and the curse that's on creation. But Peterson has a lot of sympathy for the Christian faith because he sees that the Christian faith has something profound and significant to say about suffering. We're told by God's word that there is a very good reason why we can view our suffering in the same way that we view God's glory, rejoicing in it. It's because God gives purpose to suffering. God gives purpose purpose to everything But particularly, the scriptures point out to us, he gives purpose in suffering. 
Nothing happens in this world and in our lives for no reason. It's all a part of the Father's plan to transform his children into the image of his Son, Jesus. Hebrews 5, 7-9 tells us, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. He's not talking here about a moral perfection, as if Jesus was sinful and then had to be made perfect, but it speaks of a completeness, a wholeness. It's because of Jesus' suffering that the Father has now made him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus would not be the Messiah fully. He would not be our Saviour fully if he had not gone through suffering. The Father's goal is to transform us into the image of his Son. And so he does this in our lives through suffering because that's what he did with his Son Jesus. And so Paul goes on to say here is the purpose that the Father gives us in suffering. He says, suffering produces endurance or patience. Because when we suffer, when we, we're in a place where we can do nothing, we're hopeless and we're helpless, it's in that time that we learn to trust and depend on God and not on ourselves. And he says, endurance or patience produces character because patience in suffering changes us. As the popular song says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You don't have to be a Christian to know that that's true. We probably all know people who maybe have absolutely no religious beliefs who have a strength of character that has come to them through enduring through times of suffering and hardship. That's the way things work for you if you are a human being. Because even if you're, even if you're not a Christian, God has designed you in such a way that you are, you are supposed to be conformed to the image of his Son. So suffering will change your character. It will produce character of some kind. However, the world can, can only go that far. It can only say, if I endure through suffering, it will change me and make me a stronger person. Suffering may produce endurance and endurance character, but what about hope? No matter how you may have character built by suffering, no matter how strong and how good that character may be, through your suffering, one day it'll end in the grave. The greatest suffering of all. One day you will die and then all of your strength of character will be meaningless. 
without knowing that the Father is working out his purpose in all things. The strength of character that comes from suffering is just a lucky break and in the end it has no meaning. If the only goal we have in life is to become a better and stronger person, we still face the reality that one day it will end in death. As Peterson said, you're stuck with it, so how are you going to deal with it? However, if our sight is beyond our own strength of character, which really is, that's our, our own glory, isn't it? If our focus is, I want to become strong through this time of hardship, we're really just concerned with our own glory, not the glory of God. If our sight is set beyond that and is instead fixed on the glory of God, then we have true hope. Because I know that the Father is working in me through my suffering, all with the aim that I will be a person who will glorify him and will fully enjoy him forever. And so character produces hope. So how does, how does the Father bring us from the now where we know this justification by faith and we know peace and we know the favour of God? How does he bring us to that point where we see the glory of God? Well, it's through all of the experiences of life, most of which involve in some degree suffering. This gives meaning to everything we do, everything we face in life, from the now to the then. Every moment is full of purpose and significance. And Paul says it's a hope that doesn't put us to shame. Shame is the opposite to glory. To feel ashamed is the opposite to being filled with joy. Paul says, this hope we have in the glory of God removes all shame. Now the foundation for knowing all of this, to know that this is true and that God promises to do what he says, is the love of God displayed in the death of Jesus Christ. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, all of this would be simply nice ideas but with no guarantee. However, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of God has been made manifest to us, has been shown to us beyond a doubt. How do we know God loves us? How do we know that this is all true, that we can have this sure hope? Well, Paul says, he, he says three things about us and he says three things about what he has done. Verse 6, we were weak. When we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. The word ungodly means impious or without devotion, lethargic, impassionate, not concerned at all with God. When we were weak and had an I don't care attitude towards God, yet he still loved us and sent Christ to die for us. God's love is shown to us that when we didn't care about him, he cared about us. And then in verse 8, 
when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It would make sense to us if someone sacrificed themselves for a good person or for a righteous person, he says. Someone might even dare to die for a righteous person. But how do we see the love of God? Christ sacrificed himself for us who don't deserve anything except for wrath. We had done nothing to clean up our act but still he died for us. So not only did we not care about God but we were sinners, unrighteous, who deserved wrath. Still Christ died for us. But even more than that, verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Christ. This coming Wednesday, we'll be commemorating Anzac Day when we give thanks for the sacrifice made in the past by men uh, to give us our freedom, our way of life. And no doubt on that day, the words of Jesus will be quoted often, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Probably many people quoting that and hearing that don't even know that they are the words of Jesus. Greater love has no one that they lay down their life for their friends, but how much greater is the love of Jesus himself? He dies for his enemies, not just for his friends. He dies for his enemies in order to make his enemies his friends. So not only were we weak and didn't care about God, not only were we sinners and didn't deserve the love of God but we were actually actively opposed to God we were enemies of God and because of that we were enemies of one another and the love of God was shown in that still Christ died for us this is the love of God that has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit it's a love that guarantees all that the Father has done to justify us give us peace with himself, to stand us in his favour and to give us this unshakable hope. 